Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Uh, today on the podcast, we're going to talk about 2023, the year in labor. There's no question that it was a different year for labor unions and their quest to change the balance of power between them and the companies they work for. But how big, how much do the victories that the UAW and casino workers and others have scored in 2023 mean for the future? What do they mean for the future of work, of our economy, and what do they mean for the future of our politics? And to help us think it through, we've got Sarah Jaffe here. She is a Type Media Center reporting fellow, a co-host of the podcast Belabored, and the author of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. We have talked to Sarah before about her book. Uh, Sarah, it's great to have you back uh, to talk about labor again. Hi. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's start here. I would love to get your assessment of the landscape nationally in terms of this balance of power between labor and and the companies uh, they work for. Do you see it the way I do, where we're seeing this (laughs) tremendous shift and and transition uh, in that balance of power? I think it might be a little too early to call it tremendous, but we're definitely seeing a shift. And I think the United Auto Workers contract that they've just won and just ratified is really the best example of that, which I probably don't have to tell anyone in Detroit. Um, it is a big change from where the UAW has been sure. even in recent years, even you know as recently as the 2019 strike. So that is and always has been sort of the flagship union of American labor. And I think more than anything else this year, the shift in that and the shift in manufacturing tells us something about um, not just what's happening within the UAW or within the big three auto manufacturers, but within sort of global capitalism writ large, right? Mm -hmm. That the shift back towards sort of manufacturing in this country, the Biden administration's willingness to put money into particularly electric vehicle manufacturing, and a union leadership that is tired of decades of concessionary contracts and a rank and file that, again, in 2019, the the membership of the UAW were perfectly willing to fight. There wasn't a lot of strategy going into that strike the way there was with this one. and when it kicked off, you know, I, I and a lot of people who are watching were like, this is a big gamble. It'll either work or it really won't. <laughs> and it it worked. It, I think it turned out to be a really useful change in strategy in terms of um, keeping the companies a little off balance as to where the strikes were going to go next, conserving strike funds and conserving um, the workers' energy for going out. And it allowed them to keep escalating over the course of a strike, which is often really hard to do if you take everyone out right away. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to talk about the, the, the sort of impetus for some of this, which mm-hmm. I think in the auto industry is yeah. is particular to to management behavior over Mm. the last decade or so. So let's go back to the bankruptcies and uh, uh, GM and Chrysler emerging from those and, 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 uh, you know, emerging in in better shape, I think, than, than we in Detroit in particular had, had anticipated. Mm -hmm. They make a lot Mm -hmm. of money over the next 10 years and they use that money to buy back stocks 
They yep. use that money to really change the structure of executive pay in a very yeah. dramatic way. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. don't use that money to help out workers. I mean, I, I've said a yeah. couple of times, I think the, the companies almost asked for this, uh, this yeah. strike yeah. that happened this year. Yeah, well, first on a, a really general note, I think that that is something that is common across a lot of industries is that workers are very aware that their bosses are making a lot of money right mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very aware that this is no longer 2009, right? That after the pandemic in particular, um, companies, maybe auto manufacturers slightly less than some others, but like in general, companies are making massive profits. They're doing quite well. Their executives are doing incredibly well. And the workers are still, you know, making 2009 money, particularly in the case of auto manufacturing, right? What you've had for decades, even before the bankruptcies, right, was sort of decades of concessionary contracts. Um, My friend Joshua Clover has this concept that he calls the affirmation trap, that when in the, you know, in the 1970s, when companies began closing the factories down, moving them, in the case of auto manufacturing, a lot of them to the U.S. South, but also south of the border or to China or wherever else they could get cheap labor, um, you end up with unions that were used to shutting the factory down in order to get their demands met, suddenly having to sort of beg to keep the factory open. Mm. It's quite hard to strike to keep... (laughs) to keep working, you know what I mean? Um, It's kind of a contradictory set of pressures. Um, And so labor has been sort of in that space for a really long time. But I think what happened is that union leadership in a lot of cases um, internalized the affirmation trap, right? And this is why you see a big change in the UAW when you get a different leadership elected, Mm -hmm. right? And that happens because of a change within the union first for more democratic leadership elections um, to get rid of a leadership that had grown complacent. And in the case of the UAW had a big nasty corruption scandal, right? Again, I don't have to tell anybody in Detroit this stuff. Um, But so you get new leadership that's coming out of the rank and file that is feeling that anger viscerally coming from the workers who, again, they know that their bosses are making money. And now you've also got an administration in the White House that is interested in manufacturing in this country. And COVID, again, showed us sort of the frailties of international supply chains in a really interesting way that, you know, suddenly when you're counting on all your manufactured goods coming from China and China is on lockdown because there's a horribly contagious virus somewhere that screws up everything, right? How hard was it to get a new car, particularly to get an electric car for a little while because you were waiting for parts that were coming from factories that suddenly were on lockdown. Mm -hmm. So this combination of stuff, right? This this tendency towards a bit of reshoring, Biden administration money going into um, manufacturing in this country, and at least some incentives for that manufacturing being union made, although we can, you know, thank Joe, Joe Manchin for some of those not being stronger. So all of that combined with anger and a willingness to sort of think strategically outside of the box, got us to this place where the UAW kicked off and won. But if you think back a couple of years ago, there was a string of food manufacturing strikes two summers ago, right? Mm -hmm. Nabisco, Frito-Lay, Kellogg. Um, Those are workers who kept working through the pandemic, who are making all those processed foods that we were all eating while we were on lockdown. And we're doing a lot of forced overtime. We're really, really exhausted. We're watching their coworkers get sick, getting sick themselves, sort of being forced back to work as soon as possible. And they knew 
again, that their bosses were making so much money because, of course, we're all eating Oreos. We're all stressed out, um, <laughs> right? And so those strikes, again, that, that sort of surprised, I think, the leadership of those unions, that in a couple of cases in those strikes, the John Deere strike, um, the workers voted down the contracts that their leadership were thought were pretty good contracts. And they said, no, hell no, we're staying on strike. That kind of militancy that we've seen everywhere. Um, again, I think there's something real that happened during the pandemic where a lot of workers realize that our bosses don't care if we die as long as the profits keep coming in. Sure, sure. So, so if we think about 2023 and what we're, we're seeing, and, and as you say, this kind of run up to, to, to this moment, is this a, is this a response to the kind of short-term uh, exacerbation of, you know, bad behavior by, by, by management and, and disregard for workers, or is this a more fundamental shift? And I guess one of the reasons I asked that question is specifically with regard to the UAW and its leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sean Fain yeah. doesn't look anything like uh, any UAW president I've ever known. And uh, yeah. I've known everyone back to, to Leonard Woodcock. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's just something really different about this. Is this, yeah. is this a, sh a fundamental shift in, I guess, in, in the way that this is going to look? Well, here's what I think, right? We are in a moment where the frog in the boiling water analogy has been really useful to me talking about this stuff, let's say, right? <laughs> because for 40 years, right, I'm 43 years old. I was born in 1980, right? For basically my entire lifetime, um, American unions have been on the back foot, mm -hmm. certainly after the PATCO strike. But the air traffic controller strike is what I'm referring to there for people who aren't labor nerds like me. <laughs> so, you know, unions have been on the back foot for a really, really long time. And working people have you know, our conditions have been getting worse, whether or not we're in a unionized workforce. Um, the unionized workforces set the tone for the rest of the country. They set wages in the industry. Um, if they're getting better, right, other companies feel like they have to improve wages. Sometimes even when there's just agitation at the companies, they'll improve wages like Amazon has done a couple of times, right? So things have been getting worse. Things have been getting worse. Things have been getting worse, but it's kind of slow. It's kind of slow. And then we've had in the last, you know, two decades, a couple of really huge global shocks where everything gets a lot worse all at once. One of them is what we've been talking about in 2008, 2009, the financial crisis, particularly the auto industry bankruptcies, right? All of that global crash, everything gets worse really quickly. You are very lucky if you keep a job. And so, you know, the auto workers and everybody else sign sort of concessionary contracts. And then we have COVID. And the thing about COVID, right, is that like a lot of these companies aren't doing badly when it, we come out of it. A lot of them are actually doing great. And so workers' lives have gotten way worse really quickly, right? Yeah. All of our lives got very bad very quickly during COVID, whether or not we were going to work in a workplace where you could potentially catch the virus or whether you were just locked up at home staring at Zoom all day long. Um, it was no fun either way. So those those shocks, those moments where everything gets really bad really quickly, um, you see the longer term trend. Mm. You, may, you suddenly feel that the water is boiling, right? Somebody has turned it up really, really high, and now you know that everything is on fire. 
Um, I'm mixing my metaphors a little bit. Apologies. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> um, but so, so in these moments where everything gets really bad really quickly, um, suddenly people actually realize to protest it. It's not like a slow decline anymore, right? And so I think what's happened in these moments, you know, between 2009 and now is that people are much more aware of the structure of the system that is screwing over kind of all of us, unless you're Elon Musk. Um, and that, I think, is a real change in politics, particularly in the U.S., where, you know, for however many decades after the Red Scare, if you said the word capitalism, everybody assumed you were a communist, yeah. <laughs> um, you know. We now have people who are thinking about the entire structure of the system and how it works and talking about that openly. You know, this is what the, the thing is with Sean Fain, right? When he's showing up in his Eat the Rich t-shirt, um, bless his heart, right? <laughs> that this is, um, this is somebody who's saying, not like we just want our fair share of, of, you know, the rising profits. He's like, this entire system is screwing you over. He's talking about shorter work weeks. Oh my goodness, when they put 32 hour work week in their demand list. I mean, you know me, I wrote the book, Work Won't Love You Back, right? Um, but for a manufacturing union to say openly, like we wanna work less actually, we haven't heard that in really since, you know, the eight hour day movement, really, you know, at least since the Treaty of Detroit, right? Um, so we're talking, you know, my parents' lifetime now. And, that that is a huge shift in the way that these unions are thinking not of themselves as sort of the junior partner in the coalition of everything gets better and the pie keeps growing i don't understand why we ever started with the metaphor of a pie that keeps growing pies don't grow you, you, you make them you put it them in the oven is, and you eat right? them. They, don't, they don't get bigger yeah it's not like an animal that anyway whatever um right like it, rather than thinking about this as a whatever that's going to keep growing that you can just get like a bigger slice of as it grows, you're realizing once again, something that American labor knew at its foundations, which is that like you're fighting your boss for a share of the thing and they are always going to try to give you less of it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back with more Detroit today. do want to talk about the political context here. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it is also a little odd. I mean, there are some people who yeah. say, for instance, that President Joe Biden has been one of the most pro-union presidents in the last 60 years. At the same time, um, there's a little frustration, I think, uh, among yeah. some workers about what the administration has been able to achieve, what Congress mm-hmm. uh, is doing. Uh, how does this play out in yeah. the context of the presidential election, which is just about to get started? Yeah, I mean, the bar for being the most pro-union president in the last 60 years that's, is on the floor. It's pretty right? low, right? It is, it is like, you know... a. a ant can't crawl underneath that bar. It's really, really low. It's very easy to be the most pro-union president <laughs> in 60 years. So like, yeah, I would probably say that's right. But also like, it's it's complicated. Um, one of the things that I noted, and I have a piece forthcoming actually about this, my column in the Progressive Magazine um, in the next issue is about this. It's that Um, What we're seeing from the Biden administration is a particular image of what labor is, right? It's Sean Fain. 
it's not, um, you know, a, a black woman who works in home health care. Hmm. Um, that and they, the the administration has tried to push through investments in things like home care, which have been stymied by friends like Joe Manchin. Um, yeah. Not to pick on Joe Manchin all the time, but it's really easy because he often really is the one person <laughs> standing in the way of these things. Um, and so what we've seen is sort of a lot of hype on the side of what we would almost call like old labor, right? That the, the what the, as I said, the UAW being the flagship American union for a very long time. But the biggest union in the U.S. right now is a service workers union, mm. right? It's SEIU. Um, that is a, a union that represents building service workers, but also a lot of healthcare workers, um, particularly a lot of the lower paid healthcare workers, right? Because nurses often tend to be in their own unions. Um, so we're talking about an entire workforce that, again, did a massive amount of horrific work during COVID, kept going to work, and a lot of people died. Um, that is getting a lot less attention, right? Joe Biden doesn't show up on on hospital strike picket mm -hmm. lines the way he showed up on a UAW picket line. Mm -hmm. um, there has not been as much change, and those workers have also been leading strikes. And one of the interesting um, weird problems of American labor right now, right, is that the Bureau of Labor Statistics only tracks strikes of over a thousand workers. So a lot of these hospital strikes have been just under that. Oh. And so haven't even been counted. A friend and I last year did um, a piece where we just tracked the nurses' strikes that we'd heard of. Because a lot of them, again, were 700 workers, 800 workers, 900 workers, but being missed entirely wow. by the statistics. Um, and there have just been a ton of them all over the country. Um, I followed one in Massachusetts, in Worcester, Massachusetts, that they were out for most of a year. Wow. Right. Wow. So we're talking about um, another workforce that is an absolute cornerstone of all of our lives, probably more so than auto manufacturing at this point. Um, that is an absolutely necessary um, workforce going forward, continuing right in a, a world of climate change. Um, and they're not getting nearly the sort of attention and help and financial support coming from the federal government that um, everybody else is. And that's not even talking about whether or not we're going to ever improve our falling apart healthcare system. That's just literally talking baseline, like, mm -hmm. you know, keeping workers healthy and safe in their jobs. Um, that's been a real struggle. And a lot of nurses that I've talked to have pointed out that um, the conditions that happened during COVID, the sort of emergency, everybody doing three times as much as they were normally capable of, that a lot of hospitals seem to want to keep that as the new normal. So there's been more understaffing. There's been um, more pushing for more work, even when the pandemic has supposedly slowed down, although I think it's picking up again. Mm. Um, you know, so we're we're seeing, again, a lot of workers still laboring under this feeling that their boss doesn't care if they die. Um, and who are not getting the same attention from the administration. And, you know, we saw a lot of the pandemic era policies expire, right? Things like the child tax credit, which made certainly life a lot more affordable for working parents. Um, you know, it happens very briefly. And I've watched sort of DC commentators be like, why doesn't Biden get more credit for this? And I was like, because it happened for like a year and a half and then it went away. So you made people's lives better for like a minute. Hmm. And then you said, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. And again, you know, you thank your buddy Joe Manchin, but like it's really hard to tell people to get out and vote for the Democrats. They're making your life better when 
the things that made your life better are now gone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, that people think that, and this is a bit off topic, but you know, people think that like, because Roe v. Wade went away under Joe Biden, that Joe Biden doesn't support your right to an abortion. Like these things matter because people, most people are busy, right? It's my job to sit around and pay attention to this stuff. That's what I do for eight, nine, 10, sometimes hours in front of a computer all day. Mm. Right. I read the news and I write the news. Most people are busy. They, you know, listen to the radio for an hour in the morning. Maybe if you're lucky, you have that much time. They are not paying attention to the intricate details of negotiations in Washington. Just know if their paycheck is getting better, if their working hours are getting longer, if their kids school is being funded, um, you know, if the teachers are on strike, they know that. Right. Um, You're not you have to make people's lives better, right? Like I I hate to quote Bill Clinton, but like, you know, when he said it's the economy, stupid. What he meant was not like people are paying attention to the economic indicators when they go up. No, it's how people are feeling that in their everyday life. That's why working people go on strike. How are they feeling in their everyday life in the workplace? Um, You know, so many strikes happen, not just because of money, but because of basic dignity in the workplace. I always point to the example that the first people to get Amazon to bargain, even though Amazon denies that what it did was bargaining, were a group of Somali immigrant workers in Minneapolis who were bargaining over prayer time mm. Mm. because it's an issue of fundamental dignity in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That is your everyday experience. Um, your everyday experience of being able to pay your bills, your everyday experience of like, what's your kid's school look like when you show up? Is there toilet paper in the bathrooms? Um, These are things that are in people's real lives. And if people don't feel them getting better, you know, they maybe vote for the other guy or they maybe just stay home. I I think that's that's what I really think the Biden administration has to worry about. uh, That's absolutely the Democratic fear is that they won't be able to mobilize labor to to, to get the votes they need. But let's talk quickly about the other side of that political coin, which is Donald Trump and and his overt efforts to say, hey, look, if you're interested in – uh, in in labor, if you're interested in in wages, if you're interested in in dignity, I'm actually the person that you ought to 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 make president. Uh, you know, the former president didn't do horribly with labor unions when he uh, ran in 2016. There were a couple that actually endorsed him. Um, what's his What's his pitch given the current climate, and is it is is it something that has a, a chance of success? Well, you know, I mean, I don't think he did himself any favors showing up at a non-union auto plant during the <laughs> during strike. The strike? Um, yeah. I do not think that that won him any odd. fans, the UAW, shall we say. Um, and I think the thing is that Trump has the same problem, right? He was also president. Most people's lives also didn't get a lot better. Mm-hmm. So if that, you know, if he is, which, you know, probably will be, I guess, the nominee, um, you have two people who have to argue with each other that, like, it's a weird experience, right? It's never happened in my lifetime where you have two people who've been president who you actually like remember what life was like under them. That's interesting because yeah. like I got to say like, you know, people's most people's, you know, wages have not been getting better over the last 8 years. Um, right? If we look back to 2016 and look at again, most of these conditions, right? Things did not improve that much under Trump and that's why he lost. And things, you know, if they, if people don't feel like things have improved more under Biden, 
he might lose. Yeah. But, you know, I think honestly, we might just get a really low turnout election again, which, you know, the last election was an interesting um, anomaly in what has been a long-term trend of disengagement in electoral politics sure. on U.S. side. Um, you know, and in, in the Detroit area, of course, you've got some races that are going to be very intense um, congressional races. Um, people are going to try to, you know, get rid of Rashida Tlaib. Um, that there's... Yeah, I think it'll be almost more interesting to where you yeah. are to keep an eye on, on those races. Um, but yeah, I think the fundamental problem is the same thing. And it is just that like people feel like their lives aren't getting better and that there's no way things are going to get better. We've got sort of looming catastrophes all over the place. Um, the biggest one being the climate, but plenty of others to go around. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the, I hate to go back to the Obama campaign, right? But like, you've got to give people something to vote for and something to get excited about sure. and something that feels like it will matter. This is again, why Bernie Sanders had a huge base among young people, because like he was telling people it, it can get better. And mostly what the Democrats and the Republicans have been telling us for, again, my entire lifetime is this is the best it gets kids. Um, is that you should be grateful, you know? Yeah, yeah. That, that it's like the, you know, when you were a little kid and your parents would say like, finish your dinner, there are starving children in Southeast Asia or wherever it is, right? Like, you it's know, great someone sell. somewhere has it worse. That's right. So you should look grateful. Yeah. So so uh, we've only got a couple minutes left, but I, I do want to read a social comment that we've gotten. Uh, Big Neo says, He's all for workers getting a bigger share of the profits. He says, as a postal worker, I'm hoping that the uh, APWU National, which is the American Postal Workers Union, uh, can mimic the contract that workers got with yeah. UPS as lagging wages yeah. affect all workers. I, I want to have you talk just a little about, again, uh, the ripple effect of these things. I mean, that, that yeah. optimism that Big Neo has, I think, is about what mm -hmm. we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, right, is, is again, you're, we're turning to things that make people think things can get better. And when they don't believe that it's going to come from politics, that's another thing that happens is people go like, okay, well, what can I change? Maybe I can change things by pouring the energy into the union, right? And like the postal service, don't get me started about the postal service because you'll run out of time here. <laughs> but the postal service has been a political football for, again, my entire lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and there has been, you know, I mean, the, the, talk about, you know, what happened under Trump with the Postal Service was just like this, you know, managed destruction at that point. Um, and it has not improved as much under Biden as many of us would like. Um, and that's just for, you know, people like me who just like want to get the mail, mm -hmm. um, let alone the people who are doing the work and being exhausted. Um, and so, right. So I think that there's a real desire um, on behalf of workers everywhere to like take back some of their own power and what the UAW, what the Starbucks workers, what those Kellogg and Frito-Lay workers, what the Chicago teachers back in 2012 began to show people is that you can change things with your coworkers in your workplace and that those will have ripple effects politically in ways that you don't necessarily expect, right? Like Joe Biden shows up on a UAW picket line because the UAW looks powerful. Yeah. He doesn't show up there because they look weak. Yeah. Um, and that when you are a strong, um, you know, fighting union, 
people go, oh, I want that. I That's what that. I want it to yeah. look like. Yeah. Right. And so you get union, you get workers at non-union auto plants, you know, expressing interest in joining the UAW. You get postal workers going, hey, can we do this? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and that's, yeah, hopefully, yes. Yeah. Hopefully you can do that. Yeah. And we will be watching. Okay, yeah. Sarah Jaffe, always great to have this conversation with you about labor here in the United States. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in Southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, tune in to 1019 FN.